Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 145, It's Not Really Your Fault. This week, we're discussing season 5, episode 21 of Buffy, The Weight of the World, and part 2 of the Battlestar Galactica miniseries. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right, The Weight of the World, we're coming up on the end of Season 5, um, but not quite yet. First, we have this episode. Um, so I wanted to start with Buffy and Willow. Um, and so we pick up with Buffy pretty much exactly where we left off. It, it's kind of interesting how you don't really see her at first, you know, for the first, like, minute or two it's just although the rest of them sort of talking about what they're going to do and not having any idea of what to do and you kind of for a second are sort of wondering where Buffy is in all this and um sure and then it kind of turns uh you know I think Xander tells Willow to try again even though she's been trying and nothing's happening and Willow kind of gets that like look straight into the camera like fourth wall you know shot and you know talks to Buffy and then you kind of finally get the you know the reverse shot of of Buffy just sort of staring in her trance um yeah so you realize she's been sort of just sitting there uh you know not doing anything for however long um since last week since yeah (laughs) for the whole week um so yeah, I mean, like just broadly, I kind of want to say how sort of pleased I am that um, you know, the theme of guilt is so big um this this week. I feel like it gives us a lot to talk about both in Buffy itself. You know, you kind of have Buffy, you know, struggling with with her own guilt and then also um mm-hmm. you know, Glory sort of will get to Glory having unwelcome feelings of guilt and not knowing how to deal with that. Um, and then obviously that being kind of a big part of, you know, BSG as well. Um, so it's a good, it's a good, you know, nice, big, juicy theme this week. Um, (laughs) which, which is, I'm happy about because last week we were like, uh, what do these episodes have in common? (laughs) I'm not sure. Um, Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, we get um, everybody in, you know, in that opening scene arguing about what they're going to do or not even arguing, just like not having any clue what they're going to do. Um, right. And, you know, you get nobody's really able to get Snap Buffy out of it, but you get Spike trying to sort of smack her out of it, which just gets everybody else angry and you know, mm-hmm. then Xander and Spike are hitting each other and that hurts Spike too. And then they're fighting and everything. <laughs> um, so, and then yeah. you get Willow taking charge. Um, and we've seen some yeah. kind of impressive magic from her recently. Um, and especially in, I forget which episode, but when she goes for the confrontation with, for some revenge to, to glory, you got kind of the scary side of Willow with her like black eyes and like, you know, very like, you know, uh, bent on her revenge and everything. Um, and it, obviously it doesn't, you know, 
go that far, but you still get a taste of the kind of, you know, power that she has and the authority that she can have when she really wants to tap into it. Um, you know, she kind of separates them by magic and sort of slams them to opposite sides of the room. And then you get this very quiet, like her voice has this, you know, very controlled, all right, here's what we're going to do. And, you yeah. know, you're going to do this and you're going to do this. And, you know, you know, when she says that she'll get cranky, you know, that's an understatement. Like, you know, you kind of get that sense of her deadly seriousness and she will, you know, you know, put some, put the hurt on you if you don't follow her instructions. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to bring that up. Like, interesting that in the absence of Buffy's leadership, um, in this time, it's Willow who really sort of steps up and, you know, becomes, you know, steps into that void and tells everyone exactly what they're going to do. Um, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So uh, the episode you were trying to think of is, is Tough Love, which, believe it or not, was only two episodes ago. Sure. No. Her, and I, uh, I knew it was recently. I just couldn't remember the name of the title of the episode. But, yeah. Um, um, yeah. Right after but right yeah. after Tara got her her mind, you know, melted and everything. Well, and I, I think that's important because, I mean. That sort of, that that and that's the first like we didn't see it before that right so that's not to say that she maybe couldn't do it before that but you know it's our first evidence of like this is a new side of Willow mm -hmm. you know a new stronger it, it's not like the softer side of Sears Willow right <laughs> it's it's you know the harder side of Black Magic Willow yeah. or whatever you want to call yeah. it. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, that's the thing, right? Is Tara is the trigger mm -hmm. for that. And and her specifically her anger. Um and so you get um you know, we did see it again last episode in Spiral, and um, you know, it was it was for protection, but it was also, you know, again, it's mm -hmm. it's in that danger, you know, aspect here. And and so now when I don't I almost I was going to call it an escalation. I don't know that escalation is quite the right word, but there's there's a big difference between angry Willow, you know, going all black eyed and fighting Glory because Glory, you know, <clears throat> fiddled around with Tara's mind. Yeah. And annoyed Willow not wanting Xander and Spike to sort of you know be sure hit it hitting each other yeah and in, in a somewhat comical way yeah, you know what i yeah. mean like the, there's a huge difference between you know those those things and um and I, and i would even say like like granted they they were sort of running and hiding for their lives in spiral so you know her putting up a barrier there is certainly protecting them but it's you know again it's not you know going out sort of crazily and fighting a hell god so right no there's it's, a sense it's here much more where, controlled. Um, yeah and but also that she's willing to tap into that power for something a little bit more mundane than mm -hmm. you know fighting the forces of evil kind of thing mm -hmm. um 
Yeah. You know, how, how you take that. Like, I mean, she's also very stressed out at the moment. Right, and, right. And, and like you said, like, she's the one who takes over. So it's not to say, like, I mean, it may just be like, all right, this is, you know, it's like parents do sometimes with their kids. It's like, maybe you don't have to yell that loud, but it's the thing that gets them to stop and listen to what you're saying. So, right. you know, you, you employ it in the moment and move on, you know, um, right. That kind of thing. Right. I, and I feel and like it, it might not be. have the high emotion of, of her feeling upset over Tara, but it's no less like serious of a, you know, it, it, even maybe more so that it's not even just like, the fate of one person, but it's a like, all right, we need to make decisions because everything, you know, all of reality is threatened and we need to act and do something and quit like, you know, horsing around and, and, you know, picking on each other and everything. So, um, you know, even if it didn't affect her quite as like directly, it still has that same, like seriousness to it of all right somebody has to do something and it's going to be me um do you agree with that you seemed less sure i, I think i was actually trying to make the opposite point. okay <laughs> that i mean i i don't necessarily disagree that it's a serious situation but i guess what i was trying to say and maybe i just didn't word it appropriately is is that there is a big difference between like Xander and Spike fighting and you know going to to attack Lori. So Yeah, no. You know no, the the, yeah. the idea the I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's like there there definitely seems to be, you know, again that willingness to use it in a in a less dire situation. Mm -hmm. So it's it's using the same sort of power but not not with the same um sort of severity of situation at hand, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. Um I I do see what you're saying. Yeah. Though. Like I mean, there is there there is a sense in which like, hey, you know, Buffy's out of it, Dawn got kidnapped and whatever. So there there's certainly a stress level there. Mm -hmm. Right. But there's not it but it's not the She's not in the heat of battle or anything. Um Yeah, and it and it's not it's not like a supernatural Thing that she's like right. this is a purely physical right. i mean other than that spikes a vampire but you know what i mean like it you know we're not talking like fighting the forces of hell or right. you know with a god or whatever like this is just normal rough and tumble mm -hmm. whatever which she has done hundreds of times at this point and not yeah tapped into any sort of black eye power sure. <laughs> or whatever you want right. to call yeah. that yeah, no, I get that. Like, she doesn't need to use this level of power for to to separate, you know, Spike and Xander. And it's not like they're really going to, like, kill each other anyway. Um, yeah, no, that I agree with. Um, so, anyway, I, I mean, maybe I talked too long about it. Um, but I do, I do, I just want to point that out, that, like, even in the short amount of time that we've seen Willow sort of tap into this, you know, dark eyed power. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, and again, I'm not sure escalated is quite the right word, but it like, she's become more comfortable using it even, yeah, you know, just in those few instances where it's happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, and using it like, I mean, maybe this goes along with it, but using it on her friends too, that it's not just like with enemies, I can mm -hmm. have this kind yeah. of authority, but it's with my allies. It's like, all right, you're going to do what I say. And maybe that's the right thing to do in the moment, but, yeah. but she doesn't hesitate to sort of step in and say, this is how it's going to be. Yeah. Um, no. And that's a good point because like historically Willow is more of, you know, reason girl, right? It's, right. Let's argue and debate the, you know, intellectual aspects of what's going on. Whereas this is definitely her using force to, you know, get what she wants mm -hmm. in a way. Um, yeah. And not like in a bad way necessarily, but just, you know, it's, she's not like, okay, guys, let's think this through. It's right. stop it and, right. you know, pushes them away from each other. No. And with Buffy out of it and... Giles is sort of awake, but not really at full, you know, capacity yet. And then Spike and Xander are too busy bickering with each other. It's like, well, somebody has to sort of step up and make a decision or else they're just going to sort of stay there. Um, yeah. So, and you, you do also to continue on that theme too, you get um, later on Giles mentions, uh, you know, again, the advanced magic of her going into Will into Buffy's mind and everything. So, yeah. you know, continually getting these reminders that she's doing magic that Giles, even Giles thinks is, you know, uh, surprisingly, you know, adept in everything. Um, yeah. So either for where she is as a magician, as a witch, or just generally like, you know, that, mm. that, you know, very few people at all can even do this. Um, so, yeah, we get her to find Buffy. You know, they kind of go into the room quietly and light some candles. And then you just kind of get Willow, you know, silently sort of sitting across, you know, the room from her. And you get the, so the idea of they're kind of like conversing in their minds and everything. But, you know, they're really just sort of sitting there in the room and you get her following her through the kind of pathways of her. Actually, now that I think about it, that's a nice connection to Baltar and Six of, you know, to what extent mm. is Six a manifestation of Baltar's thought process? Um, you kind of get Willow wandering through Buffy's thought process. So not just like, not yeah. just in her mind or not just into her personality or her memories, but her actual thought process of what is she thinking about and what sort of logic is she using to get there? And so, I mean, a lot of it is repetitive and circular, but that's kind of the point is she's sort of stuck on these certain ideas that she keeps repeating to herself and she can't get past these ideas. Um, and I like to how it, you know, there's the kind of visual callback to, um, uh, is it restless with, um, you know, all of their dreams and everything, how the different, mm. the different scenes and rooms are all sort of connected. So again, you get these loops yeah. where the, you know, rooms that, that lead into each other that shouldn't be able to, or there's sort of leaps in right. timelines and logic and everything, which again, yeah. that's nice. Cause dreams and your own mind you know should have a certain similarity in how they're sort of organized and structured and everything i think um sure it's 
it's pretty surreal. It's not quite as surreal as the like trippy dream stuff in Restless, but it still has some of that like, you know, there's still some of the kind of, uh, there's a logical side to it. And then there's just a, a purely, you know, uh, I don't know, impressionistic side or something of like, here's how it feels yeah. to be in this, in this moment or whatever. Right. Well, that's the connectedness, right? It's, it's connecting these seemingly disparate parts mm -hmm. of her life and experience uh, together in some way. And, you know, Willow's, Willow's sort of the rational aspect of, yeah. you know, you know, coming in and trying to figure out what are all these, you know, why are all these things connected? Why are they being brought up now? Um, but you're right. It's not quite as real. I mean, there's no cheese man. So, yeah. you know, it can't be quite as surreal. Nothing as, is as, dream, as surreal but, as the cheese man. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, there's definitely that, you know, and it's, it's like when you have that, you know, which we experience like every week, at least I do in talking about these shows, like you have that thing that you're trying to think of right on the tip of your tongue. And mm -hmm. you kind of, you kind of know that there's things around it that, can point you to, you know, maybe it's a name you're trying to think of, or maybe it's a, you know, a specific scene, but you can't put the whole scene together. You just remember their snippets of, or like, mm -hmm. you know, people who were part of it or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So Willow sort of has to do a bit of detective work. Um, yeah. And, but even like, she even has to get beyond her own sort of, uh, anger or mm -hmm. frustration at Buffy mm -hmm. um you know because to her at first it's just like Buffy what are you doing you're just sitting here like thinking about when you were a little kid mm -hmm. like what's going on here like let's figure out what's what's happening why are you just sitting here thinking about this stuff yeah um and it's not until not until she does put it together that she's able to sort of help bring Buffy back. Um, yeah. But maybe, maybe we can talk about those specific uh, scenes yeah. a little bit more. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I hadn't quite thought of it this way, but um, when you first see the first part, which is the little girl Buffy, you know, with her doll and her pigtails and everything. And um, yeah. And Willow is kind of, she's not quite impatient yet, you know, but, but there is that sense of like, why are you here? What's the point of this? And, and her kind of wishing Buffy would just sort of snap out of it. Um, and you could think at first, like, oh, this is Buffy's, like, you know, escape back into her, you know, the days when she was a little girl and, you know, it was sort of the utopian, just her and her parents and, she didn't have to worry about anything or fight anybody or, you know, be responsible for anything. Um, but then you get the, the turn when you realize that the memory is of the day that Dawn comes home. And so it's kind of a memory about the first day she really took on responsibility. You know, it's kind of about that loss of pure innocence of like, she starts out saying, you know, I, I want to be the baby and you're going to forget about me because, you know, there's this new little sister. And by the end of the scene, it's, it's her saying, um, you know, to Joyce, can I take care of her sometimes? Um, mm. so it's kind of, 
it's not even really about, oh, let me remember the happy days when I was just an innocent child without a care. It's sort of about the first time she really accepted, you know, caring for somebody else and taking on the, you know, even if she didn't know what it meant, um, taking on the responsibility of that. Yeah. So, I mean, even there, it's not as pointless or escapist as it seems. It's not just Buffy denying that she has any problems, I guess, is what I'm saying. Like, mm -hmm. it's not just let me flee to, like, the happiest memory I can think of. It's a memory that has um, real kind of significance for her relationship with Dawn and everything. Um and it's interesting, too, that later on, you know, one of the things Willow says to try to comfort Buffy is, you know, that this memory of her killing Dawn never happened, so she shouldn't be so sort of concerned with it. But if you think about it, this memory, in a way, never happened either. Like, you know, bringing home Dawn was a sort of implanted memory. And so, again, yeah. again, I think, yeah. as always, you have that theme of, your memory is sort of who you are. And if you have a memory, it kind of is less important to what extent it really happened. It, but having the memory is what shapes you as a person. Um, you know, she remembers deciding to be a big sister to Dawn, whether or not she actually did that in the, like, what we would call the real world, I guess. Um, sure. Sure. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but, um, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, certainly whenever you're, I, you know, at this point, we've seen Dawn now for almost a full season. So it's, I think it's hard for us even to sort of remember what it was like without her. Sure. You know what I mean? Um, in a way, but, but yeah, it's. You know, whenever you're thinking of anything more than, say, a year in sort of the time of um, the show, like that didn't happen. Like you, they remember Dawn being there, but she wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And so there's definitely that. I I hadn't really drawn that connection um, in the same way as you sort of stated, but I like that. Like like Willow's focusing on this memory not existing because, you know, it's in the future or whatever, or, or a potential future. Right. But, but yeah, like all of the memories never really happened because they're all about Dawn. Um, or at least part of, you know, except for like the book thing. Um, right. Which is, you know, a, a pretty recent one. Right. Like, you know, right. the, the, you know, the baby Don and all of that, like, just didn't, didn't happen. Mm -hmm. So, um, which is interesting from, a, you know, from the perspective of, okay, if Buffy's saying, can I take care of her? You know, again, that never happened either. So there is that sense of, so, you know, talking about guilt and, you know, it's not your fault. Like, Buffy's never actually made that declaration of can I take care of her mm -hmm. you know never asked that question and 
although we've seen her in in this season sort of take that on it's actually not uh you know that's an interesting memory for the monks to have put in there right of buffy sort of declaring from a young age that she's going to help take care of dawn mm -hmm. when in reality that's that's something that buffy had to sort of consciously decide just within the you know span of this season right. um you know it's only been a few months since she actually said you know or learned that dawn one wasn't a per you know wasn't originally a person she you know she is now mm -hmm. but you know that she has a different uh you know sort of pedigree or whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. um and that and that that didn't matter anyway that you know you have summer's blood i you know i have summer's blood we're the same you know and that like that was a conscious decision she made as an adult you know right. like not not just sort of an offhand comment by a big sister when she was whatever you know mm -hmm. three or four or five or whatever whatever she is in that memory yeah um so yeah, uh, that's an interesting, you know, because that by implanting that sort of memory, you know, which again, like, so it's not a real memory. It must have been something that the monks implanted, right? Like, by implanting that memory, you're sort of giving, you, you know, I'm the episode's called The Weight of the World. You're mm -hmm. giving Buffy that weight of the world literally for much, much longer than Dawn has ever even been a human. <laughs> right um right so yeah yeah um so then we get uh willow in the scene we have already seen before um with the first slayer in the desert another connection to restless um you sure. know the the appearance again of the first slayer saying um death is your gift which we've heard before and Buffy sort of mentioned but I don't think anybody really registered at the time it was sort of when the robot was wreaking havoc and she sort of scoffed right. and said like oh death is my gift but like I don't think anybody really heard her um you know and she's never really brought it up again for right. you know to see what it meant and so you know now we get the but we see, obviously, in her mind, she's she's dwelling on it, you know, that this is a a line that she's repeating to herself and trying to figure out what does it mean. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so you get Willow reacting the same sort of way, like, you know, death is her what now? You know, like that kind of disbelieving sort of reaction. Um, but that leads us to the next, yeah. you know, the next. Well, oh, and, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, I just want to say. Yeah. Um, you know, and of course, Willow has no clear understanding of what it means either. Right. Like there's, you know, this is um, one of the things that we haven't gotten in a while is sort of Buffy and Willow having their little heart to hearts, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, that was their early relationship was they would talk about everything and anything. And we haven't really seen that Um yeah. For various reasons, you know, Willow with her relationship with Tara and Buffy with all the stuff going on with Riley and then her mother. And now, you know, just basically the last three episodes running from place to place, mm -hmm. you know, um, you can understand why that's the case. But like this is 
you know, this is something that you feel like last season or the season before, you know, they would have sat down and been talking about, you know, and yeah. Buffy would have said, you know, what's this mean? That death is my gift. And, you know, where does that come from? And what could it possibly have to do with anything? And um, so now you're getting like, Willow literally has to invade her mind to find out like, what is the thing that Buffy's most concerned about? Um, right. Whereas that used to be a sort of thing that they would just talk about. Right. Right. Um, and figure, you know, try to figure out together. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, yeah, and that kind of leads into the next couple of, you know, vignettes is, is Buffy trying to figure out what does that mean and how is she interpreting that line? Um, and I, I, I want to come, there's the little scene with her shelving the book, which we don't, I want to come back to that because we sort of find out the significance of it a little bit later. Um, but uh, after that, you know, there's the Buffy shelving the book and then another Buffy sort of walks by and you're in uh, their, their house now. And, you know, she goes into Joyce's room and, um, you know, we see the, the kind of very fresh grave for Joyce, which is like, you know, planted in like the ground of you know the floor of the room um you know and uh I think it's Willow says you know I'm sorry and Buffy says don't be death is my gift it's what I do and she says it so kind of matter-of-factly like you know like obviously this is the case what are you sorry about isn't it clear by now that this is sort of you know the thing that I'm meant to do apparently is to I I guess it seems that in her reading, death is her gift in the sense that she gives it to those around her. Um, you know, so mm -hmm. Joyce is sort of part of that. And then they go into uh Dawn's room where Dawn's just sort of on the bed and crying and not really talking or doing anything. And then Buffy, you know, uh proceeds to suffocate her with a pillow and you know and this very kind of emotionless almost sort of Buffy bot way of like you know um you know just very matter of fact what are you worried about you know this is what this is what I do what's the big deal um you know she yeah. says it's what I'm here for it's all I am so this is kind of what Buffy is coming to the conclusion is that um what's the point in denying what, you know, she's been told and what experience is showing her that she just is this, you know, dealer of death to everybody around her. Yeah. Which, you know, again, is, is another sort of, um, deviation, uh, from, you know, the idea that a slayer is not just a killer, right? Mm -hmm. Like that was, that was the big, uh, thing with her and faith right between the two of them was is there really any difference between slaying and killing mm -hmm. and faith was sort of of the idea that hey we're around we can pretty much do whatever we want and that includes taking lives if and when we want although you know you can argue whether she actually ever truly believed that or sure but that's know, what she what. was um, arguing for yeah right that was sort of what she was espousing so uh here Buffy's sort of taking that on like 
And again, it's in a sort of surreal mind palace-y mm-hmm. kind of way. <laughs> so it's, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, like you get that sense of like, this is her sort of giving into that idea a little bit that, you know, she's maybe feeling that, yeah, okay, maybe maybe that's what the first Slayer is saying, that it's not just about the demons and whatever, but that death is my gift. And it's the dealing of death that is the gift, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's the gift that I was given to, uh, you know, kill. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm good at. And so that's how I solve problems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, whatever that may be. Right, which was also, uh, you know, the the first Slayer's position in Restless too was like, you know, given to this sort of primal power that you have of what you were born to do. And Buffy at the time resisting with her kind of like, I live, I eat, I sneeze, that whole like speech that she gave. Um, But here, like you say, giving into that a bit. And, you know, at least for the space of this episode, you know, submitting to the notion that, you know, maybe the first Slayer is right. Maybe Faith was right. um, That this is what we're here for. Um, So... Um, which kind of brings us to the, the scene with the book, because, um, I like how you said that, you know, there's, again, there's many different meanings to the word gift. There's her gift for killing, but then there's also the gift that she's sort of giving to other people. And I like what you said about it, you know, killing for her being a way of solving problems. Um, because that comes across very strongly in, her explanation of what the the significance is with the moment with the book, when she's just sort of shelving a book and lost in her thoughts and there's nothing, it's not a big dramatic moment. It's just a time when her mind was sort of wandering and it came to this conclusion of a few things, you know? Um, And I like, they go back and forth, the two Buffy's sort of narrate it together. But um, if you put it all together, um, it's this thing of, you know, in that moment for, for a second, she quit. She had this realization that she can't beat Glory. Glory's going to win. Um, and in that second of knowing it, I wanted it to happen. I wanted it over. And she talks about how it would be sad and she would grieve and everyone would still feel sorry for her, but it would be over and what a relief that would be. And so in a way, the giving up would be a way of solving the problem. You know, the problem of I'm overwhelmed and I don't know what to do and I'm responsible for this and I can't handle it. Well, to just give it up and back off is a solution. It's one potential solution to that problem. Mm. Um, And in a way, it's the only solution she can really think of, you know, because the whole problem is that she can't think of any other solution um, because she can't see any way that glory doesn't win. Um, And so letting her do that is sort of the only power she has, you know, is to just intentionally let it go. And, you know, yeah, it'll be terrible, but at least it'll be over. Um, So. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a, kind of a dark moment. Yeah, and it's 
interesting that that's the moment too, because you don't get the voice, the voicing of that until after, um, you know, Glory sort of finds them in the um, campus, right? And then Buffy runs away at the beginning of Spiral with Dawn and um, they go back to um, Xander and Anya's apartment mm -hmm. right after like Glory gets hit by the truck and um, that's when that's when she sort of voices it <laughs> yeah. to the rest of the group right? but it's interesting that that must have already occurred to her mm -hmm. by that point because like since then they've been on the run and then right. she's been catatonic so right. like like it is that little innocuous moment, but but maybe she was even sort of denying it still. Yeah. Like maybe she didn't quite believe it or didn't know how to say it to anyone else or was afraid if she did say it that, you know, but like maybe it was one of the things where it's like, if I don't say it, it's not actually true kind of things mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever. But it's not until that moment in uh, Xander and Anya's apartment that she sort of gives voice to it. and Yeah. And decides we need to run right right and and even you know her thing of in in thinking it i made it happen you know that that kind of you know the magical thinking aspect of it of if i don't acknowledge this thought maybe it won't really be true you know but mm. but feeling like even your own feelings and thoughts influence the way things happen in reality um sure and and I mean, to get back to the guilt, that's the guilt of it. That's the source of it is, you know, even though the worst hasn't happened yet, I'm going to start making sure it does because, you know, you're so paralyzed with the guilt of it potentially happening that, you know, um, you can't, you can't make any decisions. You're sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um mm. So, and that's sort of why she's, you know, stuck in this, uh, you know, catatonic state is, you know, you can't move forward if you can't, you know, make those decisions. Um, sure. Yeah. And that's kind of what, you know, what Willow, if Willow is, you know, Buffy's rational mind or like representative of you know the the mind or the logic in this whole thing is she could have kind of breaks in and um you know does like the the verbal equivalent equivalent of spike like slapping her and just saying like you know snap out of it basically like it's mm. not that your feelings of fear and guilt aren't legitimate but dwelling on them only makes things worse and you know you will end up you know and willow kind of puts that on her like you haven't killed your sister yet but if you stay here you will and so you have a choice between you know uh trying to make sure that doesn't happen or making sure that it does um and she doesn't really pull that punch you know she doesn't kind of say like well it's not your fault no matter what you do she kind of says now is your moment to sort of come out of it and and decide mm. to fight against it um you know and and with her line about i think we already deja this view which is a great line um you know her pointing out the this 
cyclical repetitive nature of dwelling on the same idea um that doesn't yeah. you know uh doesn't get you anywhere to you know repeating ideas expecting different outcomes is sort of the definition of insanity isn't it um or one definite sure. one definition anyway <clears throat> um right so you know all right we've tried this thought pattern and it's you know only leading us to the same paralyzed place time to try something else you know and actually do you know take some action over it Um, which she does. I mean, I don't know how much left there is to say about it, but Buffy, you know, Willow kind of lays down that gauntlet and says, I'm leaving. Are you coming? And, you know, Buffy responds and wakes up and does snap out of it. Um, you know, and, you know, immediately breaks down, you know, in, you know, sobs, which is, again, I feel like this season is this sort of running idea of, Buffy repressing emotion until the breaking point, you know, of like, we keep coming back to this idea of her, like, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, for whatever reason, whatever you want to call it, she keeps coming, you know, uh, you know, Riley sort of, that was a big part of his decision to leave. And then, you know, the same thing again with, um, Dawn's frustrations over Buffy's reaction to Joyce's death and everything. We keep having these things of Buffy's reaction to feeling responsible for everything is to just deny all these emotions that she's feeling until the point that, you know, they end up in like, you know, a total meltdown. Um, so yeah, I don't know what else there is to say. Just like, Oh, that's like, I can't remember that really happening in previous seasons. I feel like, that's a particular thing of season five. Um, mm. And maybe it has yeah. to do with the increased responsibility of feeling like sort of a parent, you know, of maybe there's a sense of, all right, I have to deny these emotions to some extent in order to take care of Dawn and which is why it keeps sort of coming up. Um, I don't know, but. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I mean, if you're looking at each sort of season as a step in growth, you know, and in, in just normal growing up kind of growth, um, I mean, obviously you have the high school years, but then season four is that, you know, sort of stepping out of the home into college life. Mm -hmm. And then this is, you know, the next step beyond that. And granted, it's accelerated. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because of, you know, Joyce's death and, and all of that, but, you know, it is all of the, it, it's all of those things that you deal with as a young adult, right? It's, mm -hmm. um, you know, mortality and not that, you know, Buffy hasn't dealt with mortality before, but it's human mortality, not spiritual you know, supernatural mortality, yeah. if you want to put it that way. Like this, you know, it's dealing with Joyce's death and it's um, dealing with the loss of her first adult love mm -hmm. um, and sort of the recovery or at least the possibility of recovery of from that with Ben, who was like, 
maybe could have been right you know a a, a love interest um you know if he wasn't half of a evil demon god you know oh darn him. yeah that old pesky thing yeah yeah which you know maybe a completely different type of metaphor um <laughs> but uh and yeah and and then you know sort of the you know tail end of the season being you know now she's um you know basically a single parent you know right, right? and 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 feeling um all of the pressure of that and the failure of that you know as i'm sure happens at times you know with many single parents um mm -hmm. you know that you know idea of everything that i'm doing i'm doing wrong and right i do just want to like sit down and not think about it or think about it too much but not do anything right, you know right. um whatever that may be yeah so so yeah i think from a you know this is sort of the next evolution of what it means to be a person and a grown-up mm -hmm. <laughs> um there is definitely that aspect to it as well yeah so 45 minutes in I wanna, I wanna um, just quickly finish, you know, with with Buffy when they do they they kind of reconvene with the group at the end, and Giles shares what he's learned. You know, he dug up some textbook that explains the ritual and everything, um, and we learn kind of what we've been hinting at and working towards, but we finally get the confirmation that. Um, you know, if if they start with this blood ritual, and you know, once it's once it gets going, there's only one way to stop it. But you know, I mean, you could just let it go, but then it'll be you know, hell, demon, chaos everywhere for all of eternity. So that's not so good. Um, and if you want to stop it, you know, you you have to finish it. You have to kill Dawn. Um, so you know, and that's sort of your cliffhanger ending. So after all this, you know, the, the kind of slap in the face after the whole episode of, you know, you haven't killed your sister, you don't have to kill your sister, you can save your sister, like, you just have to try, all this kind of stuff. Now, you know, here's Giles to say, well, you might have to kill your sister, <laughs> just so you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and the, like, absolute letdown of that realization. Um you know, it's not just that Dawn might get killed. It's that it might be for be the best thing for everyone if she does. And you right. and you might have to do it in order to save everything. So, you know, um, you know, many, many layers of disappointment there. Um, that's not that doesn't help a whole lot with the with the guilt factor. Um, no, no. And. And even like not like the guilt is that she allowed Don to get kidnapped right mm -hmm. the this becomes something even worse of like i have to murder my sister right <laughs> like, right yeah 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 so you might not just be like symbolically responsible the, you may have to be and, actually physically responsible too and and the only op you know the only alternative to that being Dawn still dies every anyway, along with everybody, everybody else. else. <laughs> like, so it's not even like 
that's a real choice. It's just right. Dawn's gonna die either way. It's do I kill her or you know does she die and everybody else dies too? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and is the the which is worse, the guilt of being the one to kill her or the guilt of being the one who lets everybody else die in order so that I don't have to be the one to kill her? You know, and so right, you're kind right. of again, you know, she's sort of said she's being set up to be sort of screwed no matter what happens um which brings us to dawn um so that is kind of the main mythological point that we learn about her um and you know we we do get this idea that there's a lot of waiting right like glory can't just kill her now that there's a specific time which is right and they have to wait until tomorrow yeah. or whatever in order to and, uh and and a ritual apparently mm-hmm. to it as well. Yes, which includes like anointing and certain robes and, you know, um the whole shebang and everything. Although although I do like this sort of dismissal that like maybe not all of the ritual is strictly necessary. Like sure. there's that you know, Glory's sort of annoyed, like, oh, all the little minions want to get their little hands on you know, to be a part of it. And maybe it's not quite all of that, but there is definitely a ritual. It's just maybe we're exaggerating it a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. But I mean, I don't have a lot for Dawn herself because I feel like, I, I don't think she's badly used in the episode. Like she, she tries to kind of do the right things, like talk, you know, to, glory and get her to sort of try to get her to you know see reason or she appeals to ben for help and you know she even tries to like escape once or twice so it's not like she's just sitting there you know not doing anything but like most of it she is just sort of kind of has to sit there and try like her main job in this episode is like not to get killed and you know try not to you know piss off glory enough that she just you know does her in right then and there um so you know a lot of it is spent with glory and then kind of ben sort of in dialogue with each other um and i wanted to first uh mention the fact of you know glory's spell that um that makes people forget when you know that they can walk around and change into each other and nobody remembers and this (laughs) the scooby is sort of um yeah you know occasional I, the the fact that they're like only realizing this over the course of the episode in sort of stages yeah i i do want to point out that it's not we don't know whose spell it is like it it may not be sure, glory's sure. spell per se it it i actually i get the impression that it's actually um you know her two other like co-demon gods right right um when they sort of banished her and uh you, you know we we had learned that ben was sort of created purposely as a vessel for glory i kind of get the sense that whoever did that creating whether it was the other gods or you know whatever their minions or whoever did it um you know are also the one who sort of put that spell mm-hmm. on there um although i'm not entirely sure i know the reason um so you know 
I mean, I guess just to not draw attention to themselves would seem to be, you know, unwanted attention of whatever kind, you know, that, yeah. oh, there's this demon that morphs every so often. Like, it's just so they can hide, I guess, blend in more perfectly with the people around them. That would be my guess. Um, yeah, and that may be. I. That's for whatever reason it's there. Sure. Um, yeah, and you do. Yeah. I I like Spike's exasperated explanation to everybody of like, <clears throat> is everybody stoned? Like you know, like yeah. let me say this again very well, slowly. Like I'm talking to children. You know, you're all idiots. Right, and that's the interesting part. Is is yeah? Why does it not work for Spike? Like, is it? only human you know must only work on humans or whatever or um we get the you know we get the sense that uh there's a breakdown right. in the spell and and sort of the barriers between ben and glory um so is it that maybe spike is just able to detect that breakdown better or right. earlier or whatever like maybe maybe had she been at full strength it would have you know the spell would have worked against spike as well but we don't right. really know why, but for whatever reason, Spike's able to sort of remember when everyone else can't. Um, and it it is a funny, like that, that scene is pretty funny. Mm -hmm. um, and I like how like extended it is. Yeah. It's like, they just keep, you just get that sense of like, you just can't quite get it through your head that this is the way things are. Um, and especially Giles, who is, you know, already <laughs> sort of hurt and, um, you know, uh having trouble sort of concentrating or whatever um he just keeps coming back to that so do we think there's a connection yeah. between ben and glory um yeah. yeah uh yeah very funny and you know xander says it again later and spike you know takes the opportunity to smack him even though it'll hurt you know um right. he just right. can't he can't stand it anymore it's it's worth the physical pain to yeah yeah um, so yeah, as well as that breaking down, there's also a breakdown with the, whatever magic keeps them separate. So they're starting to, you know, morph back into each other more kind of randomly and at closer intervals together. And so, you know, by the end you have them carrying on a conversation between the two of them, you know, of morphing back like every other sentence, you know, so they can actually... Mm. You know, because whereas before they had no memory or knowledge of what the other one was doing. Um, but now they have those memories and they can even sort of understand each other's thoughts and, you know, carry on a conversation and everything. Um, so that's sort of growing and growing as the episode goes on. Um, you know, but with Glory, again, you get this theme of guilt of, you know, with feeling Ben's icky human feelings and, and uh, getting his memories, she's getting this sense of guilt, which she, uh, you know, despises. She wants to sort of, she, she still wants to kill Don, but she also kind of wants to make her feel better about it. Like, you know, Oh, like you should be happy. Like you're, you're going home, you know, you're not really a mortal human being anyway. Don't you want to ascend to your true glory, you know, glorious purpose just like me and you know go to where you were always meant to be and then it's not until later that she's sort of like why am I even I'm the villain like why am I bothering to try to you know 
make Dawn feel better about this. Um, and you realize it's sort of her being, I guess, sort of infested by Ben's humanity, um, you know, and his, his, some of his remorse and, uh, you know, um, and then sort of, you know, it doesn't quote quite as far with Ben, but you get the same sorts of things with him of, you know, he can remember, you know, killing people, the killing the people that she killed. Um, and, you know, and, and now that I think about it, in some ways, he is kind of infected with her same personality because, you know, even you get that moment where he has like a, a, a selfish moment where he feels bad about himself, you know, like I have a job, I have a life and glory. She never once thinks about, you know, never once thinks about me and all this. So whereas he's normally very focused on Dawn and protecting her and what she needs, there's also some of that self indulgence that is typical of glory that sort of breaks in there for a moment. Um, so, you know, and yeah, and he even, you know, he talks about how he would not be able to live with himself if he were to kill Don. But, you know, you also get the thing of him sort of holding the, the broken bottle in front of her and, you know, kind of toying with the idea of like, well, if you need her blood, then I'll, you know, I'll, I'll drain it so that you can't use it. So flirting with the idea of, you know, yeah. Not exactly giving Dawn up, but but doing something violent towards Dawn in order to prevent Glory's plan and everything. Um, you know, and at the end, he does actually, you know, seemingly give her over. I'm not 100% convinced that that's really what's going on. Um, mm. I mean, we'll see. I felt like there there was a bit too quick of a of a change there for me to i feel like there's some ruse going on if he's decided to sort of pretend for the moment that he's you know giving her up but um that remains to be seen obviously um we can't really spoil it but i'm not saying anything <laughs> um um yeah. So we've got a couple minutes left. Uh, <laughs> I sort of like blasted through them. Is there anything else uh, with Glory and Ben that you think is important to, you know? No, not really. I mean, you get the you get the breakdown between them. I think that's the the biggest thing. I I would say like there's probably there's probably a certain desperation to Ben mm -hmm. um to glory as well but to Ben that that could explain the sudden change that you're seeing like i i would not be so quick maybe to dismiss sure. that change because you know if glory uh just like everybody else if if glory is successful um ben will basically die as well mm -hmm. like glory will completely take over you know and uh that's that for him um 
I would be more suspect of her sort of promising him. Sure. You know, uh, you know, what does she say? Like, I could be, uh, yeah, I could like you I a could lot. Be, I, I could like you a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you know, you kill her, basically. Um, yeah, so, yeah, no, and, like, and that does, yeah, like, yeah, it, you'll believe it when you see it kind of thing of she'll promise anything to um Right, and if, if you give help. her, if you give her what she wants, she becomes, you know, sort of all-powerful and... Yeah. Yeah, like... Can do whatever why she would wants, she, yeah. Why would she then, why would she ever be held to that promise um so yeah um but yeah i i would i would i would say that i think i i feel like it's a little more plausible at least and again i'm not Mm -hmm. trying to lead you in one direction or another but just again that that thought of like it really is coming down to the wire so for ben you know yeah he has to make a choice like he says yeah, there's it's, definitely it's, a decision to be made. it's you or me and it could come down to his choice you know of you know which of those things he chooses um yeah um so spike and xander and yeah. and doc yes uh yeah did you did you see the um I mean, I you know, we get Spike and Xander kind of uh, in in the fight at the beginning, and then mm-hmm. going to the hospital and stuff, and then um, or wherever, yeah, when they're like seeing Giles or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and then going off to you know Spike. I, oh, I know a guy mm-hmm. um, who we learned is the guy that he took on to right, previously. Right, right. Um, did you see that coming with uh, sort of the revelation there that Doc is? Uh, sort of a worshiper of the beast. I mean, we got the the thing of him uh I think it was in that episode at the very end. He's kind of seemed human until the end when he sort of you know, Dawn glimpses his little lizard tail and, you know, um so I think the fact that there was something kind of like shady about it, like he's someone who seems mm. human but, you know, then kind of when you're not looking isn't um i wouldn't say i called it but i wouldn't say i was necessarily like surprised either um you know because there was also the the i mean even though he's sort of warning dawn about what it means the fact that he kind of would give her this kind of awful spell to raise her dead mother and everything it's like i i don't know that i would have thought he was like a worshiper, a worshiper of, you know, the beast, but like, he seemed like someone to be wary of, um, Mm. you know, like someone you'd have to maybe think twice before accepting his advice or something. Um, so no, but I didn't necessarily think he was going to be like a, a minion of glory in particular. Um, sure. So that part, you know, did kind of surprise me. Um, you know, and, and, you know, he's kind of acting shady when they're, you know, asking about glory, you know, he's kind of like, on the one hand, it could just sound like sound advice of like, well, she's dangerous and you should probably stay away, but kind of in retrospect, you realize like, well, he's kind of trying to keep them out of the fight. Like, you know, like this is all advice, which is, you know, hoping that they'll just go away and not get involved. Um, 
And right. it's only because they don't that he ends up having to sort of, you know, fight and reveal himself and everything. Um, so yeah. he's sort of like forced into that. It's not like something he necessarily like, you know, attacked them like the second they brought up glory or something. Sure. Um, but yeah, he and he has something in a box, which is uh, worth dying for, as Spike says. Um, and yeah, some heroics from from Spike and Xander, you know, Xander, you know, fighting, you know, to the death to kind of, you know, get rid of this guy and, uh, you know, Spike reaching into fire to get the box, which for vampires is, you know one of the deadly yeah. one of the deadly pretty, things pretty dangerous so you know each of them kind right. of you know going to some pretty scary lengths to you know to get what they need and everything um so yeah and then of course his eyes open at the end so you know there's you know that is he or isn't he really you know he seems not so much dead at the end um Right. So what happens then, you know, we'll see, does he, can he get in touch with Glory somehow to sort of tip her off as to what's going on, that they have the box and all that kind of thing? I don't know. Um, yeah. We shall see. We shall see. Um, with Giles, I mean, I don't have a lot. Like, he goes to the hospital and sort of gets himself patched up, so he seems to be sort of okay. Um, I liked his his sarcastic line to Xander about, it only hurts when I answer pointless questions. It's like, his, right. his constant impatience with Xander is, you know, always amusing. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, and, and we have the, the information that he gives Buffy at the end. Um, and then Anya and Tara, you know, aren't in it much. Anya is sort of put in charge of, you know, keeping an eye on Tara. And she gives Willow her very enthusiastic good luck. Um, you know, but then says it to herself, like, a little bit more quietly. So, you know, it's like, it's sincere, you know, it's not just what she's expected to say it's you know she's sure. she's genuinely wishing it as well sure. um and then tara just has her her you know symbolic line about you know the world is spinning straight to a new day big day big day you know so which maybe is kind of why dawn is the name all this time is like tomorrow is the big day and you know mm. dawn being mm. you know the revelation of that like now it's that sounds like a good thing. Obviously it's not, this is the kind of big day you want to avoid, but, um, you know, Dawn's name being sort of a point, a pointer to that, I guess. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. So, and interesting, you know, again, that Anya's sort of put in that caregiver position. Yeah. Um, and seems to be okay with it. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Cool. Well, um, 
season finale we've got, next. We've got the well, finale next uh, after, next time we talk after about Angel. Buffy. Yeah. And uh, and and I'll note that the uh, title of the episode is "The Gift." So um, we all know what the gift is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We just don't know how it will play out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, necessarily, so we'll we'll have to see. Yeah. But anyway, on to the second half of Battlestar Galactica miniseries. Um, and we'll see if we can keep this discussion oh less than two hours this time. <laughs> this part of the discussion. Yeah. Um, so. It, I mean, it doesn't help that these miniseries episodes are like twice as long as normal episodes. Either, right. So, right. You know. Right. We of have course. we have excuses. Of course. Uh, I wanted to actually start. <laughs> so I'm going to start not talking too long by talking about some very minor characters. Yeah. <laughs> Starting with <laughs> the, the kind of, of things we usually leave that, to the end. For that like, we would, yeah. yeah, that we would normally skip right over. Yeah. Um, no, I did want to talk about these two minor characters um, in particular um, because although they're minor, I think there's some interesting stuff to bring up with them. Um, first of all, I wanted to talk about... Um, Prasna, mm. who uh, is so minor, he's not even alive anymore. <laughs> so minor, he's not <laughs> even in the episode. But <laughs> by, by, by the second episode, he's already yeah. dead. Um, I wanted to bring him up because I realized in sort of watching it, uh, BSG, this time through, that Posner is the Jesse of BSG. Mm. Um, and if you don't remember who Jesse is... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one, I don't fault you, uh, but he, uh, you know, he was Xander's best friend yeah. uh, way back at the beginning of, um, you know, Buffy, uh, played by Eric Balfour. Um, and he was bitten and turned into a vampire and then eventually dusted in the second episode of the series. So, um, you know, we even had like Joss Whedon saying how he had wanted to sort of put him uh you know, put Eric Balfour in the opening credits to kind of give him a greater weight mm. and make people think that, you know, he was going to be this person that we would sort of get to know and, and, you know, think that he was going to be part of the team. And, and we still do get some of that in the episode, even though he didn't end up being in the actual opening credits or anything. Mm -hmm. But, um, uh, and then you reminded me too of Clive from Doctor Who, mm. uh, who's who I had thought at the time, and I I sort of again still can't believe that like I had forgotten about Clive um, <laughs> because I kind of felt like he was going to be almost maybe a Giles character right. uh, at the beginning of Doctor Who, uh, given his sort of watchfulness of the Doctor and you know putting together like these images and websites and stuff um, all about the Doctor, um, but then he ends up getting killed and yeah we we you know nothing really comes of that character um and i feel like prasna is that same way because in the first um part of the miniseries you get this uh just sort of offhand comment that he's the one who put together the plaque that's given to mm -hmm. the admiral um or the commander adama um and that uh not just that, like he put together this plaque, but that he apparently spent some time researching, uh, you know, this information that he took the time, you know, to to get the right 
picture and you know find the right picture and do all this and then also you know presumably helped on restoring the um you know original fighter that adama had flown and and all of that for the ceremony um so you get this sense that you know this is this is not only like this is a caring guy but he's also someone who's cared for by like the team mm -hmm. you know like uh, uh chief hero sort of gives him his dues and then uh, later in the first part of the miniseries, uh, Prasanna dies. He's one of the 85 who don't make it out when um, the uh, Galactica is hit by uh, a nuclear warhead. Right. And, and uh, you know, you have Tyrrell and Captain Kelly who are trying to, you know, get people out of there. And Ty gives the order to seal off, you know, that part of the ship. And uh, it turns out that Prasanna is one of the ones who dies. Um, but what's interesting is not is that it's not just left there. Mm -hmm. Like it, it would be very well. And so sorry too. I also kind of got the sense that there might have been something between him and Callie, mm -hmm. um, if maybe not romantically, at least like something that could have at some point turned romantic or sure. whatever, uh, you know. But certainly, but certainly a friendship and a camaraderie. Um, and you get that. Um, you know, it's not real clear, but it is. I believe his, you know, it's Prasna who, uh, you know, is on top of Callie. Right, right. Uh, when, she's, Kirill, when she's crying, you know, yeah. Yeah, when she's yeah. crying. So there's there's a sense there that he sacrificed himself for her. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't know that for sure. It's all sort of just done visually and, you know, very emotively and right, whatever. Right. But uh, there is that sense that, like, maybe he shielded her from, like, a blast or something or, or that somehow right. him being in front of her saved her life and whatever. So, or, at the, so you, or at the very least she was there and witnessed, you know, him die. Yeah. So not just right. she cares about him, but saw him like die herself. You know, she was there. Right. Um, so, so you get this, you, you get this sense that he's, you know, clearly someone, uh, you know, who was, uh, you know, uh, Again, like, you know, someone who people cared for and, and that he cared for other people and that, that he was sort of willing to go literally above and beyond the call of duty, you know, mm -hmm. in that sort of instance. And um, I think generally, I I just sort of found it interesting that they, that these characters sort of, you know, that there's one of these characters in each of the series yeah. um, that we're talking about. And and sort of ruminating on it a little bit, I, I thought that like, I, I think it in a way adds depth to the series that you wouldn't normally get um, because it get you know, even though we know like with Battlestar Galactica, you know, just taking it, not even, you know, thinking about the other two shows for, for the moment, which just taking it um, at there, you know, obviously we know this is the end of an era, right? It's, it's the Battlestar and the commander are being retired and, you know, so there's long histories there and we know it's one of the original whatever and it's being turned into a museum and all of that. And that's fine. And that gives it a certain, you know, weight and history to it. But it's through the, the character that of, mm -hmm. of Prasna, you know, and the others backstories as well. But this it, it sort of adds that bit to it that, you know, there's this guy there who everyone cared for who we'll never really get to know. Right. I mean, we, we only get these snippets, but we'll never 
get to really know who he was and mm -hmm. and what he did so you know or really even what they meant to him but you get even in this episode starbuck returning not knowing that prasna was dead because she was outside right she was the right. one who was like hey you're on fire and right. you know you've got all this um you know so she comes back and is like hey like she she comes back all hot about like where is he you know he didn't fix my ship right right so it's like you know again like sort of highlighting the importance of the role that he played yeah and then you know chief terrell is like well yeah he's dead <laughs> no, yeah he's, and the like, assumption you know, of he, well of course he's there like you know you right. don't assume that anybody even in under an attack situation you don't assume that anybody's going to die until they're not there, especially not like the ones inside the ship. Like you expect maybe with the pilots, you're more, sure. you're more braced for finding out, Oh, so-and-so didn't make it. But like, that's probably mm -hmm. very rare inside the ship, you know, for the crew members, like, you know, working on the deck and everything. Um, so yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. Um So the other um minor character, um, who is still around, although he was introduced late in the last episode and he's not gonna last much longer. <laughs> um but, though not through death, just yeah, sort of just through, through, through uh, mar marginalization yeah, or, or, yeah. or whatever you want to call it. Changing um, the writers changing their minds. Yeah, but um it, is a uh, uh, boxy who's the kid um, who sits in the co-pilot seat mm -hmm. next to um, uh, a boomer on the way back from uh, Caprica. Um, and you get sort of the conversation between them. Uh, but I wanted to bring up that boxy is uh, a character uh, <laughs> who was sort of brought in from the original uh, BSG show. Yeah. Um, and in the original show, uh, he actually actually his mother um serena is uh uh she was um I, I forget what she started out as but she you know in the course of the show she like starts taking the training to become a viper pilot mm -hmm. and you know she has her son boxing whatever and then strikes up a uh romantic relationship with apollo mm -hmm. um who and and they ultimately get married and Boxy becomes Apollo's stepson, and then his mother dies. Uh, so uh, you know, Apollo basically becomes the father, you know, the adoptive father right. of Boxy right. in the show, and um, all of that. And um, you know that that sort of complicated relationship never sort of appears. He, he actually uh, he's portrayed later too in um, like the the nineteen eighty you know, mm -hmm. uh, miniseries or whatever that, that comes later. Um, but he's like a grown, like the character is there, but it's a grown right. man. He's, you know, he's uh captain or whatever. Um, and they don't call him boxy anymore. It's whatever his real name is. Okay. Um, in this version, um, you know, we get the, the reference, you know, to his uh, parents dying or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, he's actually the son of the envoy. Right. who is in the space station, um, who's the first, you know, sort of one, you know, he, that's like the act of war. Like he's the, the right. Archduke the Ferdinand, so to casualty. speak, you know, right, right. Um, that, that sets off the war. Um, 
and I thought that was an interesting little twist to it. Um, it's it is kind of a way, in a way, a little too bad that like they don't do anything more with his character after this because I feel like sure they do set it up in in a way that could be interesting. Um, but yeah, I I did at least want to you know call back mm-hmm. to that um, sort of original aspect of who he was <clears throat> and uh you know the complicated relationship that that's there and then the sort of lack of like it's one of the few places where you can really say you know what the writers did kind of just sort of take the easy way out on this one sure <laughs> um with bsg which which i generally think is just a really well-written show and sure um, well you know and and if i'm gonna give them the benefit of the doubt a little bit mm-hmm. i think i don't remember which episode it is if it's the next one or somewhere in season one, I think he does show up one more time. And my memory of it, um, and maybe some of this I've read or listened to a commentary or something, is that it, it it's pretty awkward in the sense of they don't quite know what to do with him. Like now that we've introduced him, we don't actually have much for him to do. So I have to say, to kind of give them the benefit of the doubt, I, I'm, I'm glad that they realized that early on and decided to not even really go there rather than try to shoehorn this, this character in, um, you know, and sort of drag it out. I mean, obviously the best would be if they found a really compelling role for him, but, you know, I kind of feel like if they couldn't find one, um, then I'm sort of okay with him being like, the sitcom kid who like goes upstairs and like never comes back down again. (laughs) Like, I feel like it, if that would be a lot harder to do if he was around for the whole first season. Um, whereas mm-hmm. like you can kind of buy that, like, all right, he came on board in the miniseries, but sometime between this episode and, and the, the last time we see him, they real, you know, Adama says, Hey, you know, you, boomer, you can't have a kid sleeping in your bunk. We got to transfer this kid over to like, you know, one of the other ships or something like that makes that makes enough sense to me that I'm not sort of bothered by it. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe a slight wasted opportunity there of some potentially interesting storylines and everything. Um, and I don't want to discount the role that he plays in this episode. Cause I think he does, you sure. know, have a good part to play, you know, especially with, you know, with Boomer's character, obviously like, um, a lot of it is ironic, you know, so bringing out before the big reveal at the end, bringing out what seems to be a kind of caregiving maternal instinct in her, um, you know, that it's her instinct to sort of, you know, watch out for this kid and also like take him under her wing and bring her on board, bring him on board with her and even let him like hang out with her in their, you know, rec room or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. So that being a kind of, you know, irony given what we learn about her. Um, And then also them bonding over, you know, their shared thing as being orphans, you know, that you find out her parents died when, you know, she was little and, you know, in this accident. So, you know, they're both these sort of young people who were cut off, you know, from their families and everything. Although again, with Boomer, you realize that that's, a sort of ironic foreshadowing, you know, that there's a reason that, you know, she's an orphan and doesn't have any family and that she's a rookie, you know, that she's right. new. 
you know, of all the pilots, she's the newbie, um, which kind of, again, sets her apart from the group. So I think sure. having him there is a good way to to bring out those sides of Boomer that doesn't feel like she's just giving you exposition about her life for no reason. Like the fact that she can share that with Boxy sort of makes that a natural way for it to happen and everything. Hmm. But yeah, um, Boxy, we hardly knew you. Um, <laughs> I think he does show up one more time, but I don't think it's really to do much. So, I mean, effectively, this is sort of, you know, the last we hear of him. So, um, all right. So on to some slightly more important characters. Um, yeah. Do we want to, we wanted to kind of start again with, uh, again, I mean, we were talking about how it's natural to talk about the characters in pairs and to mix and match the pairs across the, the board and how, you know, differences of worldview and ideology and temperament and all these things sort of create these like dichotomies of everything and how the, the dynamic shifts as you switch up the pairs, you know, um, and maybe, I mean, I think those relationships will even change over, you know, the course of the series and everything. Um, but, you know, Adama and Rosalind being the two, you know, really big ones who are kind of defined by their, you know, uh, ideological differences early on. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and I feel like too, in, in thinking about it afterwards, I feel like we maybe slightly neglected Rosalind a little bit last time. So I think good to talk about them and kind of what she brings to it because a part a lot of her arc in these first couple episodes is her becoming somebody who can have a viewpoint and stand up to Adama. I mean, she starts out as, you know, such a kind of, she's reeling from this news about her cancer. And so a lot of it for the first episode is she's very quiet and subdued and, you know, you get the sense that she's, a pretty quiet, polite person anyway. So it's not like she's usually, you know, you know, around sort of telling people what to do or anything, but you had kind yeah. of mentioned how it's really with her assumption of the presidential, you know, duties that she becomes somebody who's, you know, capable of standing up to Adama, um, you know, and obviously they have some more clashes, uh, in this episode too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, one, I, I guess the, the main one that we have here is, um, one, once they're together, right. Once the, like, we're kind of skipping to like the middle of, of the episode yeah. because, um, you know, for the first part, they're they're just kind of doing their own separate things, right? Like, Dom is going off and having the Battlestar uh, outfitted and, um, you know, running into Leobin, who we'll talk about shortly. Um, and Rosalind's off, you know, uh, recovering from the attack and then helping, you know, continuing her search for more vessels and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um so it's not really till you know they come together you know halfway ish through the episode that um 
we get their conflict, but the main conflict uh, is just what to do next. And, you know, it's, it's pretty simple. I actually, so um, you mentioned the dichotomy of it before. Um, I see a lot of, a lot of what they do, I feel like in, in Battlestar Galactica is um, sort of classic Hegelian dialectic mm -hmm. where you're taking two sort of diametrically opposed positions and, you know, sort of beating them together <laughs> and then uh, coming up with some sort of synthesis um, or or a resolution maybe more towards one, you know, point of view than the other. But um, but then that turns into like some other conflict, you know, right. you know, where that position then you know, it was conflicting with something else and something else. And, but you know, sort of why I think it's such a well-written show though, is that they do that on various levels, you know, so you might get, you might get different versions of the same arguments being mm. played out amongst different characters, maybe at different levels, you know, you, so you have it like the high level of, you know, Adama as the Admiral and Roslyn as the president, but then you might have like a lower level version of that between like, two pilots or like, right. you know, chief Tyrrell and a pilot or something like that. Right. Um, but you also get just different, different uh, sort of dialectics being hammered out uh, by different people here and there too. And it, like you said, like it might, sometimes it just depends on like which episode it is and what way people are thinking. Um, yeah. And, and, and that's not to say that I think the characters are inconsistent because I think they hold viewpoints consistently, but I think those change as the characters change too. And then, sure. and their, and their and, approach might change depending on who they're arguing with or, you right, know, or, or right. what's the particulars of the situation at hand or whatever. As, as happens in real life. Absolutely. Too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think, uh, you know, certainly you know it's it's based on facts or or maybe there's you know sort of significant moments which i think ha happens here so um you know again between adama and Roslyn, if um sort of their main contention uh in this episode is is what what are what is the next step mm -hmm. and and neither i mean they're both they both sort of hold the positions at least at the beginning that they were that they've been holding all along like it's yeah. not like either of them have changed positions it's just that they weren't together when you know they held it so um in a way it is a continuation of the conversation that they had by wireless mm -hmm. you know previously of you know Rosalind wanting to help their survivors and you know sort of nurture the uh human race back onto its feet and then you know Adama saying no we need to you know get weapons and defeat the Cylons and, you know, bring the fight to them and mm -hmm. all of that. Um, but I do like, I do like how they start out because it, I, I, I like Rosalind's very direct approach of, am I going to, you know, should I be expecting a military coup? Right. Like, right. are, are you, are you going to throw me in jail and just take over or what's going to happen? Yeah. Um, and, and I like that the framework here is not a framework of military versus government. Mm. It's, it's, you know, uh, you know, versus civilian mm -hmm. government. Um, 
it's a, uh, you know, the framework is, okay, we do recognize that even though everything has been decimated, there's still, you know, there's still a society that we're working within. This is not total anarchy. Right. This is not, um, you know, uh, an opportunity for us to just say, you know, screw it to all precedent and law and everything that has come before now. Um, even if there are aspects of those that we might disagree with, yeah. that's all, that's all still there. And we at the top are, you know, making sort of this concerted decision together, yeah. uh, you know, to, to adhere to that. And our first act in making that decision is to violently disagree on, you know, or not violently. I mean, they don't come to blows or yeah. anything, but, you know, vehemently disagree about, you know, what are the next steps that we should take. Uh, but they do it in a mostly respectful yeah, and, I think so. you know, yeah. uh, uh, yeah, certainly know, once they're in the room together, I think they are respectful. Like maybe he makes a snide comment about her being, you know, a school teacher over the, the radio but once they're face to face i think it seems to be a respectful discussion you know it doesn't ever come to you know it never again quite comes to that sort of name calling level um or or worse like right or an actual coup actual well, you know like yeah 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 um no and i think <clears throat> to a certain extent that's to credit adama because it's sort of easy for Rosalind to recognize the value of the military side because she understands that we need them. Like we need them for protection. So I understand that there's value in them, but it would be easy for Adama to, you know, if he didn't see the value of what Rosalind brought to the table to just for the practical expediency of it to declare martial law and to say, you know what, we're in a war situation and we're about to be wiped out. Your opinions don't matter. <laughs> and we're as the ones with the big guns, we're going to do what I say we do, um, mm -hmm. which he doesn't quite let go of. Even at the end, there's still that sense of, well, I'll think about it. You know, there's still a sense that he holds more cards than she does, more chips than she does, but, but he doesn't just dismiss the importance. Like, you get the sense that just for, you know, as a person, he values, you know, that they're, that the military is answerable to this civilian government and he, and he can't just totally discount the importance of that. Yeah. And the fact that like, okay, if the argument, if we, if we agree that there's value in both of these things, then the argument becomes all right so at, together what is our decision the fact that he does become convinced by her argument that if in the end after disagreeing with her he defers to her decision and changes his mind um you know and it's her words he's repeating about the war is over and we lost and we have to go and make babies and all that kind of thing like you know he walks out of the room kind of you know refusing to hear her argument but by the time, however long later, by the time they actually have to make a decision, he's come around to seeing that, um, you know, yeah, uh, mm -hmm. maybe like Buffy, this is a war we can't win. And maybe, well, maybe the best thing would be to, you know, 
hightail it out of here and think about the longer goals of what we should be trying to do and not just the short term, you know, glory of going down with guns blazing and getting revenge and everything. And, you know, it takes him seeing someone who he uh, cares about or respects, or I don't know how you would put it exactly, but, um, you know, it, it, it's when he sees Dee and Billy, mm-hmm. you know, talking to each other um, and sort of noticing the googly eyes that they're sort of making in their awkward conversation about the kiss. Right, right. Um, you know, that happened earlier. So, uh, you know, it's it takes him, you know, and D being that one who, you know, however however he sees her, it it seems to be, you know, one, she's clearly, you know, one of his crew. So, you know, to yeah. put it in sort of a Malcolm Reynolds, you know, respect, it's like, right. okay, this is actually someone who I care about versus Roslyn who... Yeah. yeah, is just a school teacher, and okay, she might be the president now, but right. like he doesn't care know about her, he her in that same you know, way. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, so it's kind of until he sees it on that personal level that he's not, you know, that's when he becomes able to sort of understand the importance of it, um, you know, of her position, and and sort of like you said, uh, comes to agree with it, and then. He does, you know, but, but the, so again, if I'm going with like, this is sort of a Hegelian dialectic, you know, being worked out, there is the synthesis of it because it's not, you know, it's not just enough to run, which is what Rosalind wants Mm -hmm. to do. She, she, you know, she says, we we need to run, we need to go, we need to start having babies and all of that. He sees uh, the idea that there needs to be more of a purpose Mm. to it. So, so there's still okay maybe maybe it's not military fighting the cylons but but there is a military aspect of yeah. you know going into the void and protecting you know humanity until they can find a new planet you know to set up on and and even once they do find a new planet to you know offer protection there like there's still a role for the military in that and there's but there's also you know uh just the fact that now we find out that he's lying about it, but mm-hmm. the idea that, you know, as the, like that this great secret was entrusted only to the military commanders of these, you know, right. Uh, uh, high level battle stars and all that, like, you know, so even if it's sort of a false purpose, mm-hmm. there's still a purpose in that as well. Um, you know, a, a military purpose was right. specifically. So there is sort of co- of a combining of the two. Like it's not, it does it's not it doesn't just become, you know, him sort of totally exceeding. You know, to Rosalind's point. Uh, you know, there is that aspect where there there is sort of a com- combination of ideas. Yeah, yeah, and that like if you're going to lead this battleship full of soldiers, they're going to need a purpose. You know. Because otherwise they're going to want to get back into that fight, you know, and you need to give them, you know, as just sort of their, who they are as people, they're going to need, you know, some sort of objective that they're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to give them. Um, yeah. And with the, the speech, um, 
you know, and the fact that he does sort of lie about that. Again, there's, I can't help but see like that parental theme creeping back in of like Adama and Roslyn is like, you know, mom and dad are only telling you part of the truth. You know, I'm not suggesting that like lying is a always part of parenting, but there is that sense of like, we're going to shoulder the, the burden of the real truth and not really, you know, uh, give that out to all the people that we're trying to lead and take care of, you know, um, mm. we're going to, mom and dad are going to take care of it. And you don't need to really know what kinds of discussions we're having and decisions are being made and everything. Um, sure. So, yeah. And with his, uh, with his speech to, um, you know, the, the, repetition of the very important line you know so say we all you know so this which yes. kind of functions as their sort of amen i guess like you know this is how we sort of you know affirm our beliefs to each other and how kind of the the change between the first time he has them repeat it with how kind of sad it is like like you know we're we're i guess well so say we all like uh, you know we're all kind of depressed and you know nobody's really feeling mm. it but by the end of his you know rousing speech you know they're shouting it and chanting and you know hugging and everything and like how you can see the visible difference with now that they've been given a purpose you know how much of a difference it makes to their perspective on their situation and everything um, and I was, yeah. I was thinking again, what you said about him being sort of Mr. Exposition that like, again, he, he <laughs> I, again, I like the speech. It's well-written, but there is that sense of, all right, Adama's going to tell us the arc of the of the series, you know, of like, <laughs> right, right. Like, all right. Just in case you weren't paying attention, this is the situation long way from home, jump beyond the red line into uncharted space, limited supplies, limited fuel, no allies, and now no hope. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to go find earth. Um, and like, this is basically telling you summing up like what the show is going to be. Um, right. so, uh, but again, you, I buy that Adama would say those kinds of things. So it doesn't just become totally corny. Um, it's like, no, he's going to sum up our situation, but turn it into a way that becomes positive rather than completely, absolutely like nihilistic and depressing. Um, sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, all right. So where to go next? Um, I guess let's keep talking about Adama a little bit. Well, actually you, you had brought up, um, Roslyn and Billy and some of this stuff, um, it's not conflict stuff, but it's it's just sort of more about their characters um, that we learn there. Sure. What did, what did you want to... Yeah, well, and I would say it doesn't ever come to conflict, but there is a slight, um, you know, I guess conflict of just perspectives there where um, I wouldn't say they're totally in opposition, but they are just on different levels, as you said. And so you get... Roslyn listening to Apollo and Doral and the pilot argue about 
what should they do when the silence come back? And Roslyn decides to, to take Lee's advice and, you know, jump away. They have to jump away and leave, you know, however many ships behind that can't make the jump, which, you know, is, I'm not necessarily questioning the rightness of that decision, but, you know, Billy sort of putting that on himself to point out to her that, you know, the little girl that she met will be one of the ones who can't make the jump. And she sort of thanks him for that. And so there is a sense of, you know, I mean, it's only the second episode. She certainly seems like a very caring and conscientious person who wants to save the human race. So it's not like she lacks conscience, but like there is a sense where when you're thinking at the highest level of what do we have to do practically in order to save the species, you can't afford to think at the level of, you know, each individual person. And so it's almost like Billy takes on that role of, I'm here to remind you of the stuff that you maybe won't notice on your own, you know? So, mm. you know, this decision, which again, Billy doesn't necessarily argue with her, with her decision. He just says, you know, you should know that this has a real effect on a person that you met, um, you know? Right. And it, he just sort of lays it out there and she just sort of says, thanks. Um, but then, you know, the other side of it is he says, there's something you should know. And she interrupts him and, you know, rather than talk about what he wanted to talk about, she starts interrupts to say, I have cancer. Um, I wish I could say it's the least of my worries, but the world is coming to an end. And all I can think about is that I have cancer and I'm probably going to die. How selfish is that? And Billy says, it's right. not selfish. It's human. So, um, you know, I want to bring this up again with like the whole idea of guilt and selfishness and whether thinking about yourself is, you know, selfish, you know, so for Rosalind, you kind of have these two tragedies happening at the same time, you know, her whole world being destroyed and, you know, her getting, you know, this diagnosis. So again, you have this conflict between like the big picture and the very personal and that she feels selfish for thinking about the personal. Um, yeah. You know, which I want to bring up with Baltar because, you know, that's almost exactly what number six says to Baltar is the whole world's ending and all you can think about is you, um, you know, and Rosalind right. kind of says that about herself, like the world is ending and all I can think about is, is yeah. my own, you know, position. So I know we've ragged on Baltar and we'll continue to do so, but I want to point out like, maybe he's not so different from everybody else in his selfishness, you know, that there's something which is there's a sure. similarity there between yeah hmm that's interesting i mean I, so if, if i if, I, if, I agree with you sorry i could almost see let me just finish i could almost see number 6 saying you know the whole world is ending and all you can think about is yourself and baltar responding it's not selfish it's human you know now whether he's right about that or whether that makes it okay I'm not necessarily saying any of these are right or wrong feelings. I'm just saying, I think there's an echo, um, you know, and sure, that sure. separation of the, the, 
whether it's like the personal and the political or like whether like it's like that big picture thinking of other people and then, you know, thinking about your own position, whether or not it's noble, it may be human. So, um, you know, there's at least a relatability to it, if not like an admirability to it, I guess. Right, right. Um, But you were going to. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you to a certain extent on you know, sort of their responses, uh, you know, to the idea of being, you know, uh, this is the world ending and I'm thinking about myself. Um, except that mm-hmm. for Rosalind, it's demonstrably, tr- you know, true that she does think about others. Sure. Because there's, there's the you know, rescue missions. Um, and granted, like, she's directing more than actually going out and finding people herself. But, you know, she's the driving force behind that. Like, she's the one, you know, who initially has um, Lee going and mm-hmm. collecting ships and bringing them there. And then, you know, sends out Boomer to go do that. So, um, you know, so there is there is a sense in which even though she might, even like in the midst of those things when she might be thinking about the fact that she has cancer, it's not all she's thinking about. Like it's clear that she's right. thinking about, yes, she's thinking about herself, but she's thinking about more than herself. I'm not sure that's demonstrably true with Baltar. Yeah, and um, I'd, I'd absolutely agree with you. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to belabor the point, I guess. I just thought as you were saying that, that those were sort of the thoughts that went through my head. So, yeah, no. And I don't, you know, I don't mean to say that that makes them the same, you know? Um, and I definitely agree with that, that Rosalind is thinking about much more, um, you know, and, and maybe Rosalind is being a little hard on herself, whereas Baltar's not being hard enough, you know? So they may be experiencing, they may each be experiencing a sort of mix of, you know, guilt and, and self sort of focus, but the, the extent to which they feel those things and in comparison to what's really going on are like not even really in the same ballpark. Um, you know, I just wanted to point out at least the similarity of like the language there. Um, you know. Yeah. No, there's yeah. And I mean, I didn't pick up on that even. So like I'm glad you pointed that out because I I, I would find it hard to believe that that's a complete coincidence, you know. Like it it does seem like that would be the sort of thing that the writers would would mean to sort of draw attention to. Mm-hmm. So um yeah. Um, well, that's the only thing I really wanted to point out about Rosalind and Billy, um, unless you had anything else. Um, so, all right. So to continue with Adama, um, we wanted to talk about his, uh, encounter with Leoben, um, who we meet in the you know, Anchorage station, the Ragnar Anchorage. And, um, you know, he's this sort of smuggler hiding out, uh, 
you know, who sort of doesn't seem to know what's going on in the wider world and is kind of belligerent and scared and, uh, you know, is becoming sicker and sicker as the thing goes on until eventually you find out, you know, he's, you know, a Cylon in disguise. So I guess the second Cylon that we know about um, after number six. Um, yeah, and they have some... Adama, you, you get the idea, kind of suspects. And so he's sort of playing along and letting them kind of walk down this corridor and letting him sort of chatter on so that, um, you know, he can kind of get an earful of what exactly is going on. And Leoben you know, calls himself an observer of human nature and has all sorts of opinions of what human nature is. And, um, you know, after Adama's, sure. Adama's, you know, very noble views of, you know, what humans are capable of and our purposes and everything, you know, Leoben says, um, you know, that maybe God made a mistake and the Cylons are his way of, you know, correcting that mistake and, you know, giving souls to somebody else as his chosen rather than to human beings. So he has a very kind of dismal view of what humanity means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. And as the philosopher of the Cylons, <laughs> um, like he'll continue to sort of theorize about that you know, yeah <laughs> yeah 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 um yeah i don't have anything in particular to say about his sort of philosophy stuff um but you're right like he he does paint a very sort of bleak picture of humanity um and so you know so on the one hand like you the story that he gives, right, is that he's like an arms dealer and like it sort of fits with that kind of thing, right? Like humanity is sort of a cesspool and people kill each other anyways. I might as well make a few bucks off of that right. tendency. Um, but yeah, you know, when, when sort of when you find out that he's a Cylon, then it takes on a whole new meaning, mm. right? So is this like, is this sort of artificial intelligence's way of looking at humanity of, you know, this is, uh, you, you know, humanity is sort of a cesspool and that's why we're trying to get rid of it, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Like uh, that's sort of, that's sort of the implication that um, comes. And then, but then there's also that comment that he gives to Adama of, Sooner or later, the day comes when you can't hide from the things you've done, um, which is what Adama right. had said previously, basically, mm -hmm. uh, in in his speech. Uh, not not the one in this episode because that comes later, but in right, the right. you know last episode, um, you know, talking about does does humanity even deserve to live? You know, and does, you know, is it, you know, is this the thing that, uh, you know, we need to face, you know, because we created the Cylons? And in a way, there's there's a very similar 
sort of attitude here um, from Leoman to 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 that whole speech that Adama gives. So mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting then that, of course, you know, face to face with that very philosophy, Adama sort of rejects it, right? And and beats it to a and then, pulp. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know that I have a lot more to say about Leobin, but yeah, just that it's it is interesting that um, here you're getting sort of you know sort of Adama being faced with almost his own words mm-hmm. uh, verbatim, and and he he doesn't like it. <laughs> right. Well, and there's a sense of okay, he asked the question rhetorically: Did we deserve to survive? Did we like you know? Did we create and therefore deserve what happened to us in the first war? And then, all right, here's Leoben answering that question saying, no, you don't deserve it. And we're here to kill you. And like you said, Adama rejects that. And by the end, like you said, he's giving purpose to the fleet to survive. Like, you know, uh, we, you know, have, you know, we have to go and, find a new home and, you know, start over. And so any, you know, he may have been harboring these, these kind of, you know, doubtful reservations about human nature, but at least for the time being, he's decided that, you know, to reject that and that they do deserve to keep going. Um, And I mean, it's a lot easier to sort of be defeatist rhetorically than like in practice like everybody thinks you know negative thoughts but the question when you're faced with your own survival you know most people fight for it whether or not you really you know like yourself all that much um you know and that's probably true on like a macrocosmic scale as well as on the individual level so um sure Yeah. Yeah. So, and, you know, kind of uh, the first like fight scene there is with a Cylon too. So you get the sense that like Adama kind of wins because Leoben is sick because of, you know, all the, whatever, you know, the radiation or whatever it is that's making him sick there. But like, you still get a sense of what, uh, you know, strong opponent he is. So you kind of are getting the hint that the Cylons, when they're at full capacity are probably much, you know, stronger than, you know, people. Um, So sort of a hint at, okay, in hand-to-hand combat, these guys would be really hard to sort of beat. Yep. All right. Um, So... Oh man, we have so much more to talk oh about still. Uh, all right, we should we we definitely need to talk about Baltar. Yes, because there's a there's a lot that goes on with that. Um, and so okay, so you you had mentioned um, before we started recording that in the um, sort of the production scripts and stuff that they referred to the version of six that may or may not be part of his imagination as head six. Uh Um, So, I mean, 
we can use that designation, I think. Sure. Um, although, like in this episode, it's really the only... I mean, we see several sixes at, at the, the very end, end. But, yeah. like, I don't think we'll confuse any of them with uh, our conversation here. But just noting that convention that we'll try to yeah. remember or stick to. Um, so... The big question, of course, and which is sort of implied by the name, uh, Head Six, is whether or not this actually is uh, a manifestation of Baltar's sort of uh, subconscious or or what have you, mm-hmm. um, or whether there is some sort of Cylon technological thing going on here. Like, um, there's the suggestion that maybe there was there's like been some sort of implant Mm -hmm. uh you know implanted uh i hate that i had to use the same word twice there um but you know uh inserted into him uh you know by the sixth that was on caprica before she uh before she died um or was destroyed or whatever um so it is ambiguous Mm -hmm. Uh, I think here and, and throughout the rest of the series as to what's actually going on. Um, and you get moments like finding uh, the Cylon device in the CIC where you have to question, like, is this something that, uh, you know, in sort of the way that, that we see it play out, Six uh, points it out to him. But that could just as easily be, you know, he noticed it subconsciously and this is sort of the manifestation of how he realizes that subconscious bit of information at a conscious level. Yeah. Like it, you know, he, he sort of becomes drawn to it um, and notices it and, and, you know, his train of thought leads him on to other things. So it's not real clear exactly what's going on. Um, no, but you, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to no, say, I was, just... I was going to say that it, in the end, it, you know, it, it, it's good to keep the conversation going. And I, it, you know, obviously the answer is not clear, but um, you know, it does matter what she is because that changes her motivation drastically. You know, if she's, right. if she's a chip, then, this could be direct communication from the enemy Cylons directly into Baltar's head, into the fleet, you know? So she, you know, when she says things like, I'm just trying to help you, you know, what does that mean? Like, you know, that could mean everything from he's being directly manipulated and coerced by actual Cylons that are out there. Or, you know, if she is a manifestation of his, mind or his own guilt or whatever you know it could just be his own you know like you said his own rational thought process of oh that device looks familiar where have I seen it before I gotta plant some evidence so that they don't look at me and all that kind of thing um you know and that makes a big difference as to you know for the for what the Cylons know about the fleet what kind of communication they have what information they can get in and get out um you know it it matters whether or not she is like you know based on a real objective piece of technology or whether it's just part of himself yeah 
Um, and so I know you, you wanted to talk to specifically about, um, the conversation with, uh, Lieutenant Gaeta, mm-hmm. uh, where, where we get sort of the first, uh, implementation of sort of the three-way conversation where, where you have, um, you know, the conversation between Baltar and Gaeta, but then you also have head six talking, um, and, and the responses that Baltar gives are in a way directed at both entities, (laughs) um, really, really complex writing. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, like the motivation side of things, like becomes sort of blurred because then you're not quite sure how to respond. Like, is this, you know, is head six sort of voicing Baltar's own actual opinions or, or is this, you know, an out, you know, an external opinion sort of being given uh, by this Cylon's understanding of who Baltar is. Right. Um, and so you get things of like, like the discussions about guilt and, and or lack of guilt um, where you have, you know, Gaeta sort of saying, oh, it's not really your fault and, um, you know, things like that. But then you have Six saying, actually what I find, you know, uh, appealing about you is that you don't really feel guilty about any of this. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, again, does that, is that Baltar saying, I don't actually feel guilty, Mm -hmm. even though I did sort of have a hand in what, and not sort of, but directly had a hand in, you know, bringing down the defense systems of the colonies. Um, you know, is that, does he not feel guilt because he actually isn't guilty? Or does he not feel guilt because of what Six says before that, you know, he has a, a penchant for self-delusion, right. you know? And, um, you know, and then again, is that, you know, is this his, you know, introspective thinking about it through sort of the device of Six? Or, or is that, you know, insight coming from you know, a Cylon right. uh, technology. Right. Or like on an even more like complex, like confused level, if she is like a manifestation of his own guilt over what he's done, then he's feeling guilty about how not guilty he's feeling. You know, like there could be a level of, sure. you know, if if she's himself talking to him, you know, when she gets all snippy about, well, it's not like you cheat on women. It's not like you, all you can think about is yourself. Like, that sarcasm is self-directed maybe, you know, of, you know, again, she repeats the same line about the world is coming down and all you can think about is you. And so if we're thinking about this as Baltar thinking about himself, there's almost a slight awareness of that. If like, he's not really capable of fully embracing what that means. And again, even when he's being guilt ridden, it's still narcissistic. It's still, it's about how I don't feel guilty enough. You know, it's still self-focused. It doesn't, it doesn't ever reach out to anyone else. Um, Yeah. And I like the way, like it, like you said, all the dialogue does double duty. Like if he says, yes, I know it's like, who is he talking to there? Is he talking to, you know, six or to Gata? And so you get like, obviously there's a lot of scenes like this to come of where like, 
he's carrying on multiple conversations at the same time and it's always very funny and everything. Um, but yeah, and one other, a uh, couple other quick things too, because I feel like that is a really well written scene and there's a lot packed into it. Um, you also get the irony of it too, of they're talking of what Gate is telling him not to feel guilty about is the, the navigation program that was corrupted. So they're not even really talking about the same thing, you know, like, hmm. you know, on the one hand, he's saying, you know, you didn't know what they were going to do. Don't feel bad about it. It's not like you meant for it to happen. And Balter's like, no, I know. And it's like, but that's not what he feels guilt for because he didn't know about that. Sure. But you, you know, Gata doesn't know the half of it, which is he gave these right. codes to number six. So he's responsible mm -hmm. in more than one different way for <laughs> Like right, in right. many ways, he's responsible for what happened. Um, and then the final kind of thing I wanted to point out too is with all these, like whether it's Baltar or Roslyn with this idea of it's human to be a little bit, you know, selfish and self-focused. There's also, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think obviously we're getting examples of how the opposite is true. Like you said, Roslyn is very also very focused on saving other people. Um, and so in Baltar, in the midst of Baltar's very, you know, self, you know, focused, you know, ranting, it's, you know, Gata reaching out to him in empathy saying, you know, like, you know, in the midst of everything that's happening, he's saying, I know how you must feel. And, you know, and, and I'm trying to help you, not feel so bad. And so you're getting these examples of people not just thinking about themselves, but thinking about, you know, what other people must be going through, even as like the world crashes down. So, you know, sure. anyway, I don't think the comment is just that humans are always selfish because maybe they are, but they're also unselfish at times. And I think like, that's one really good example where Baltar can only think about himself, but here's somebody reaching out to him, trying to be sympathetic and, you know. Sure. Uh, anyway, which he can't really accept because he knows he's really guilty. So he, he can't, you know, he has to sort of dance around it a bit, but. Yeah. Yes, he does. Um, okay. Continuing with Baltar, <laughs> and speaking of him being self-focused, there's the whole thing with Doral. So, yeah, he decides, you know, if he's going to point out this, uh, you know, potentially dangerous Cylon device, he needs an excuse for, you know why he's noticed that it shouldn't be there and, you know, who could possibly be responsible for having put there. And he sort of picks, he sort of picks Doral because Doral is, you know, the outsider, you know, he, nobody really knows him. He, you know, nobody really likes him, like, cause they don't really know him that well. And he's kind of annoying and, you know, he's sort of always hanging around being like, you know, you know, getting in the way and everything. So he sort of picks him as the easiest target, um, mm -hmm. you know, and 
convinces Adama and Ty that he has this sophisticated screening process for how he can, you know, detect Cylon from human. So, um, right. You I, and again with Baltar, there is that mix of. I'm sure he's smart, but how smart? You know, like you get the sense of all right. He knows enough. Right. He knows enough <laughs> to kind of BS his way through it. But you also realize there's a heavy amount of BS in there of as long as I make it um, sophisticated sounding enough, they won't question it. You know, if I can convince them that I know more than they do, they'll let me, they'll just, like Ty says, I'll take your word for it. Like, (laughs) like, you know, right? it's trying, it's like, you know, I used to work with, forensic scientists it's like them trying to explain to me you know how a mass spectrometer works and i'm like all right you know i believe you um it's all it's all greek it doesn't you know and i feel like that's kind of what baltar does like there's probably some scientific truth mixed in with you know a lot of bs and um you know he can kind of fake it well enough that they sort of buy it i guess yeah yeah and i mean of course the interesting aspect of that is that he happens to guess correctly right. <laughs> yeah. um you know the and the question becomes then is it did he actually create some sort of test that actually does work or is it just sheer lack of or sheer good luck i guess um or if head six is actually a cylon Mm -hmm. was there some sort of hint that she gave him right right Um, but then that begs the question if head six really is a cylon why is she helping him identify cylons you know like that even presents its own problem of okay what are her motivations um Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, she kind of, she doesn't exactly tell him yes or no, you're right. Um, You know, she does kind of joke about, um, you know, he doesn't seem the type and I haven't seen him at any of the parties, you know, but like you get that she's joking. She's not really saying, no, it's not him. Stay away from him. Um, So it kind of seems like she leaves it up to Baltar to make that decision. Um, but yeah, is there something that she, you know, gave him some reason to sort of look in Doral's direction? Um, it's kind of hard to say. Right. But yeah. And that it is pretty funny with Doral's like complete indignation and like, you know, yelling at Baltar about his lying and all that. And then to find out, you know, it really was him all along. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you you know, you get a hint of what a dangerous situation this is. Um, you know, Ty said about, you know, well, we can't be accusing each other for not, like, brushing our teeth and stuff. But, like, well, Baltar has executive power to accuse anybody he wants, you know. And there's a sense of how quickly the witch hunt gets started of... If anybody can be a Cylon, that means we could point the fig- the finger, you know, 
we will start pointing pointing the finger at pretty much everybody pretty soon. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. <laughs> so, um, we should move along. Try try to move along yeah. here a little bit. Yeah. So let's talk about Starbuck, because um, she has a couple of uh, altercations. Mm -hmm. um, so, well, I and I don't know if I'd quite call her stuff with Lee an altercation. Although, any anything that Starbuck does does seem to have a sort of, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. It does sort of always seem to end badly. No right. There's always like a confrontational approach. No, and you do get that, that even when like Lee is alive and they're happy to see each other and they're getting along, it's like even when they're on good terms, there's still something kind of like, I don't know, competitive about their relationship. You know, like the, sure. they, they, Absolutely. they talk in like, teases and banter and stuff like um you know it's it's good to be wrong well you should be used to it by now you know like everything is like a dig at somebody um and that's when they're mm. that's when they're happy to see each other and like you know actually enjoying each other right so you kind right. of get the sense that that's just sort of how they relate to each other um there's like almost a sibling kind of relationship there you know um yeah although although it's a little bit charged there too um sure uh yeah anyway so the the important thing that we learn um in sort of their uh conversation though is that starbuck is actually responsible for passing mm. Zach, um, Lee's brother, uh, when he wasn't qualified, mm -hmm. which is, you know, that was basically his accusation against his father, right. right? Was that was that you helped him advance when he wasn't qualified? Yeah. Um, come to find out, it was actually Starbuck who actually is the one who passed him um, because they had a thing going on. They had mm -hmm. a relationship apparently. And she felt like she couldn't say no to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, which um, maybe helps explain why she's so forgiving to Adama. Like, she doesn't seem to hold Lee's opinion that Adama, you know, is the one who's responsible for it. And maybe that's one reason why is, you know, sure. she there's some... She's aware of okay. Adama's not the only one who pulled some strings to get to get Zach through flight school. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that definitely could be. And uh, on the flip side, you know, Lee gets really angry really fast when she tells him that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but you know, there's also. Uh, there seems to be a little bit of a reconciliation, at least between Lee and his father mm -hmm. in this episode, uh, when they, you know, realize that each other is alive and uh, 
you know, Adama gives his son a hug and, yeah. and all of that. And then, you know, at the end when they're sort of talking and, and there seems to be, you know, maybe, maybe Lee still has those thoughts and feelings, but there does seem to be, uh, you know, something more of a understanding between them. Mm -hmm. Here, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, sorry, go ahead. No, and I was just going to say quickly, too, like, there's a sort of reconciliation with Starbuck and Lee, too, with her, you know, being the one to, you know, rescue him when his uh, ship sure. is broken. That, you know, um, whatever bad decisions she's made in the past and whatever personal issues she has with her work environment, she is you know, this great pilot who you can count on in the field and like, you know, won't leave, you know, her friend behind and will pull crazy stunts in order to get people back that actually work. Um, mm -hmm. So that sort of, not that that makes up for all of her failures in life, but it's sort of like, well, this is what she can bring to the table is, you know, this reliability in, you know, in the plane um and a loyalty to like who she's fighting with um so sure. um and we wanted to mention to her yep, definitely we wanted to mention to her uh again with the issues with her work environment her uh non-reconciliation with ty who i love it because he comes in all complimentary and all apologetic and then says, well, sure. don't you have anything else to say? Like, he's just waiting for the, the you know, uh, you know, the reciprocation of that, you know. Um, yeah, and he doesn't even wait long. No, like, he waits like a, a half beat. a second. You know, yeah. totally like, you know, jaw clamped. He's ready for his apology, you know. And and she, she lets him down. Um she doesn't apologize and doesn't even really accept his apology. You know, that it, she doesn't want a reconciliation, um, you know, and, right. and kind of like, now that I'm thinking about it, kind of like for those same reasons as, all right, she might be, you know, she might make questionable decisions and be difficult to get along with at times, but she's reliable as a soldier. And that's exactly what he's not, you know, she, says like you know you're dangerous and you're drunk and i don't trust you basically you know and so it's not worth reconciling because almost as comrades in arms i can't you know trust that you'll kind of be there for me um at least that's kind of yeah. how i read what she's saying so um yeah yeah he goes away disappointed and <laughs> You know, throws his bottle in the trash for like however long, and then sort of takes it out to look at it. So, um, you know, right? Obviously, right? Uh, you know, an addiction is going to take more than just putting your bottle in the trash for a couple minutes. But, um, you know, he's angry about being called these things, but he can't exactly deny them either. Not truthfully anyway yeah um yeah no she 
has none of it. And, you know, the funny thing is, too, that he he says to her, you know, you just don't know when to keep your mouth shut. And it's like, well, neither do you. Right. Like, right. Not saying that she would have apologized had he not said, well, don't you have anything to say? But why would that be what you end that with? You know, that's not an apology. Right. It's a quid pro quo. Right. Right. Um, right. It's a request for an apology. Yeah. Well, and it it undercuts any potential sincerity that may have been there mm-hmm. because then, you know, the only reason you're saying this is to have something said back to you. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Yep. All right. So. All right. Boomer, I mean, I feel like I kind of already talked about her at the beginning. Um, do we, I guess, yeah. maybe want to mention the, the, the big reveal at the end that uh, Boomer... Let's do it. it. Yeah, we're, we're spoiling it. We're playing fast and loose with the spoilers. Um, she's, yeah, she's our last Cylon that we find out uh, in you know, in this episode anyway. Um, you know, so number six, we sort of saw right away. Leoben, you know, not a big surprise. You know, it's the weird guy by himself in the station. Um, you know, Doral, maybe a little bit more of a surprise because we knew him a little bit better, but you still kind of had some lead up to it. But Boomer's the one that just sort of comes out of nowhere. Um, you know, a, yeah. In retrospect, maybe there were some hints, but they were very subtle. You know, it's only when you go back and think about it that you go, oh, yeah, she's an orphan. You know, she's the the new rookie and everything. Um, right. You know, yeah, there's nothing you wouldn't, about you wouldn't her that, put that together. Right. She's not like Doral or Leoben who are like outsiders in the situation. Um, this is somebody very, you know, intimately involved in the world of the of the ship. So it's not somebody you would suspect. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what else there is to... Well, the only other thing to mention, I guess, is Six is uh, saying that some of the silence might be sleepers. Um, and so the, the option sure. is left open that, you know, for Boomer and potentially for Beyond Boomer, there are, you know people in the fleet who are silent and don't know it. Right. Um, so they're not all number sixes who are trying to sort of intentionally infiltrate, you know, humankind. Right. Right. Yeah. And we know that there are 12 models. So yeah, we know four of them at this point. Right. All right. Well, um, you know, there's a bunch of other little things here and there that we wanted to talk about. Um, I don't know that we need to get into them too much because we'll have other, other time. Um, sure. I, I think just quickly, um, in respect to the stuff with this episode, um, we already talked about sort of the Cylon test, mm-hmm. whether it's, it's actually a test or not um you know the part of their whole point in visiting the station was to get ammunition one of the things i always find funny is that like they they refill this 
you know, their ship with all this ammunition. And then it seems like they must expend half of it just like leaving. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. Like how many times and like especially in the first episode, right? Uh we're going to see them expending a lot more <laughs> ammunition and stuff. And so you just have to wonder like how much ammunition can this battleship I mean granted it's a big ship and right. all of that, but man, just like the sheer number of bullets that they like Right spit out at right. the base stars right. when they're you know going on here it seems seems uncanny uh right but. right yeah and that's where you know i think they they make an effort to kind of deal with that up front and say okay we're stopping at these places for supplies and here's what we're doing but after a while it's like at a certain point you know you have yeah. to just accept that somehow they have bullets or they're melting things down for for bullets or whatever, like, you know, yeah. I think by season four, you know, at least for me, I, I don't care so much where they get the bullets, <laughs> you know, but you know, there is that thing of like, yeah, how, how much can this ship, yeah. you know, how often um, does it actually need to, but I do well, want to say, I do want to say, I like that they at least try to acknowledge some of that up front with things like finding the, the, you know, the fuel ship and stuff, like, you know, whether or not it always is plausible, at least I think they're thinking up front about, all right, what are we going to need as we go forward in the series? One of the things is fuel. So we have them, one of the ships they have can, you know, uh, supply fuel, at least to a certain extent. So, um, you know, they do yeah. make well, they that, do make some nods to that of like we actually need stuff in which to survive. That that was exactly what I was gonna contrast it against, is that you know, where you have them, you know, sort of doing this one time stop for ammunition, the refinery ship is is definitely, you know, that's something that they're taking with them. And so, you know, in a way you could almost even look at this as like a an old west like wagon train story yeah right like just keep like on wagon training yeah yeah they're they're supplying themselves as best as they can up front but they're also there's a certain amount to which they're going to have to just sort of make do along the way right um and then you also have the the complexity um that gets mentioned of the prison ship mm -hmm. where you have these uh you know 500 prisoners and we were talking a little bit um, you know, in the beginning, uh, I think before we started recording about how, you know, you're, what you're really getting here is an actual microcosm of an actual society. Like it, this isn't just like, oh, the best of the best and, you know, all the military people, you know, you're getting all of these ships that have civilians, um, and in fact, quite a lot more, uh, civilians than there are military personnel. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and and some ne'er-do-wells as well right like right. i mean these you know these are hardened criminals who were being transported to you know a prison or whatever and and now you know you have to figure out how to deal with them and and again you know another uh sort of hint or signal that we're not dealing with sort of anarchy you know you might expect like oh you know throw anyone out who's a drain on society and that in a lot of scenarios might start with the criminals, you know, the, the people who have already proven that they can't reasonably live within 
the bounds of a society. Mm -hmm. Um, But you get Rosalind saying, you know, no, like, even if I hear that there was like an accident, you're, you're not gonna be going with us anymore. Um, So, you know, there's that aspect too that there are all sorts of people, you know, from every strata of society um, sort of in this group. And so you, you know, you do have sort of a true microcosm of what's, uh, you know, what the human race is. Yeah. All right. Well, we did better than last week. <laughs> um, hopefully when we get to sort of normal length episodes here starting in the next week, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll start having our own normal length episodes again. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think sounds like a plan. Good. So, all right. Well, we'll be back with the first uh, official episode of season one. uh, And we'll be back with some more Angel next week. All right. See you then.